0: Welcome to the Chasing Goodness Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Kinzara. Great to be with you as always and excited for the interview today. So many times in life, we hear people just struggling, whether that's career or life in general, and that doesn't get better with age, I've discovered. So I'm pretty excited to talk to a gentleman that has recently put out a book called Unmasking the Inner Critic. And the tagline is Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life. And just reading that tagline, Makes us all want to read that book, right? So I'm super excited for this conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, Author of Unmasking the Inner Critic, Andrew Lang. Enjoy. Welcome, Andrew, to the Chasing Goodness Podcast. So great to have you on. I'm excited about the book Unmasking. I've been perusing it for a few weeks now, I believe, and it's it's just a different kind of book. And I think that reason I'm so excited to have you on is because what you bring up in your book are conversations that I found myself in with a lot of my friends with my wife and things like that so I'm really excited to hear like where you came up with all of this but before we get into that like let's just introduce the listeners to who you are so in whatever words you want to use share a little bit about who Andrew Lang is
1: yeah, it's so good to be here. Um, I, I'm excited to have this conversation. i the book just dropped like a week ago, and so I'm still like kind of in book launch, chaos mode of of this new way of being. Um so I was a teacher for a bunch of years. Uh, I taught high school humanities, and then I shifted gears into the nonprofit space. And what I do at nighttime, though, is what really, I think, feeds me and and fills me up. And that's I lead workshops with adults. And most of those workshops are around what do we do as we get older and we had dreams for our lives or we had narratives that were written either by us or placed upon us and things didn't go as planned or things didn't go the way we wanted them to. And now that we're older, what do we do with that? And so that's really where I get filled up and excited is that process of just breaking down inner work, breaking down narratives. Um, And that's, that's what the book is about. That's what almost all my workshops are about. So happy to get into it. I love it. I I'm tell- so
0: I'm I'm not going to guess how old you are. You look like you're younger than me, but I'm 46 and I've got to tell you the number of conversations I have with people in my general age group that fall into the category of exactly what you just said is just astronomical. Like we're all in this place where we're looking back And we're thinking about our life. We're like, well, some things were good. And then other things were just like a total shit show. And why was that? What did I mess up? What were things put on me? What were some and what I love about the book, which we're going to get into is what were some underlying beliefs that I've had Mm -hmm. that I have to if I'm going to attack the second half of life? in better ways than I attacked the first half I'm going to have to get to. So I guess I'm interested in hearing what was the inspiration. I mean, I know I'm I'm guessing it was out of some of these classes, but where do you, are you just sitting around chatting and you're like this, I'm just going to do this thing to help people with this thing that's going on in our
1: world. Yeah, it totally emerged. It emerged from, I think, The first big thing is there's a reason so many of us are wrestling with these questions of what do I do with these narratives? And that's a lot of us grew up in spiritual spaces or families or communities where narratives were placed upon us that needed to get broken down um, or that over time just broke down and didn't work for us. And so now we're in this space of, well, what the hell now? What is what do I do with this? What do I do with my identity now that this narrative that defined me is no longer working for me? And so where the book came from was really it came up out of conversations with folks asking those questions. It came up out of conversations with older folks asking those same questions. And that's why I think it's fascinating is a lot of folks around me. 60, 70 years old asking the same questions that the deconstruction crew of the 30s and 40s are asking. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my first curiosity, like, well, what's going on here? But I think that's a big part of it is just when I look out into the communities that I'm in, I'm noticing these trends. And we're all trying to figure out how to make meaning with our lives outside of these boxes or belief systems that we were originally handed that no longer work for us.
0: Yeah, because so many of us, you know, you it's, it's what we're taught growing up. Like you figure out what you're going to do in life. You figure that out with your faith community, with your career, with your family. And then you do that for a while. And it almost fe- it, it does it not almost it does feel fulfilling to like stand on your own two feet, raise kids like what you're doing. You're, you're just saying your kids are down for a nap right now. Like that's such a rewarding and challenging and beautiful experience. And then, you know, you get to this place where you do that for long enough. And you start wondering, well, did I do that the way I wanted to? Did I do Mm. that because somebody wanted me to do it? You know, you start asking all of these questions because I think you find yourself down. Most people, I won't say everybody, but a lot of people, again, in my circle have found themselves in kind of this moment of crisis where they're like, I feel like I'm halfway through and and I'm just not sure if I'm in the place that I'm desiring to be. And I love that you're so the book. Some of the things that you talk about, and I'm sure this will resonate with people listening. There's one chapter that's about I'm not good enough. There's I'm not important. There's I'm not lovable. I am alone. I am worthless. I am not in control. I'm not free. I am uh, or I am my trauma. I did not or I do not know who I am. And I think all of us can resonate with one of those, if not mm-hmm. more than one of those. And I, I can pick out the one for, I'll tell you right now, for me, it's that I'm alone. You know, I've been yeah. surrounded by humans my whole life and I, I don't even know why I feel that way, but I live my whole life with this sense of either I am alone or I'm fearing that I will be alone. Is this a comprehensive list? Is this, uh, <laughs> where, where did you where did you come up with it all? These are the only nine fears yeah. that we have. No, <laughs> oh, good, good. If I can get a handle on, nine, I think I can handle nine. So if there's no yeah. more fears, life should be good.
1: <laughs> Let's replace the box we were handed with a new box. Yeah. No, I. These are um these are nine that I've seen. Um, these are nine fears that I've I've seen emerge up from within workshops. These are also things, um, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, that I think mm-hmm. is aligned with some of the Enneagram work and other personality um, tools and frameworks as well. But they're really nine of the core fears that humans experience in different ways and at different points in their lives. And so for me, I'll, I'll name the one that I struggle with the most is I'm Not Good Enough. I That is a consistent narrative that exists within me and has existed from when I was young. And so when I think back to when I was you know 10-year-old Andy sitting playing Madden on the couch and losing there's a reason I would jump up at the end of the game and shut the Xbox off before it saved. And it's because I took my value and the good enoughness. And if I couldn't even win a game on Madden, (laughs) what did that say about me? And so there's this narrative that, you know, obviously it's a silly example, but there's that narrative that has popped up again and again in relationships. And so what the book is, is it takes you through nine of these core fears And it brings you into the teachings of um, spiritual mystics, of poets, of therapists, and it really teaches um, what do they have to say for how to work through those constricting narratives, those fears. And then there's reflection questions throughout and body practices. It's really, um, I'd say, like a workshop and a book. It's definitely yeah. not it's definitely not a read it and leave it book. Uh-huh, uh uh-huh. every everyone I've talked to who's who's uh read it so far, far or has gotten it um it's one of those that you read, you sit, you go for a walk, you come back to
0: it. Yeah, and you even set the book up like that. And I was going to I just wanted to make sure that people before they got the book just understood like if you you get this book, get ready for some work because it is it's it's not a workbook. It's a book with with work Put into it. Mm. And I love one of the things that I love that you did in this book that I'm not sure I've seen in a book like this is that you actually start with some questions. So at the beginning of a chapter, you'll engage in some questions just to get our minds thinking about what is going to be talked about and then at the end there's more reflective questions as well. And so I thought that was really unique and really fascinating and helpful because it it already gets you engaged in before you even write anything it's already got my mind engaged in what you are going to write about which I thought was really fascinating.
1: You know what I'll share and this is from my experience and this is part of why I set the book up that way is when I I grew up in a progressive spiritual space and what that meant for me, so it wasn't conservative, it wasn't fundamentalist, it was Christian, um, progressive Christian. And when I was growing up in that, there were questions, were always okay, doubts were always okay. But one of the things that was not fully instilled in me, and to this day, when I look into those spaces, I notice this missing is the real depth work of why are you the way you are? who are you really? And not just listening to a sermon and walking away, but actually getting in deep with some of those, um, with some of those questions. And so the book, the reason it's shaped that way is I want this to be an experience of doing the spiritual work that churches have so often promised and failed to fulfill, failed to come through on. And if I can even get close to that for a couple people, it will be a success. That's, um, I think I wrote this for me at the beginning, because that's what I needed to do. And about halfway through, I was like, Oh, hell, okay, <laughs> this yeah. might be this might be helpful for others. And and that took on a life of its own. Yeah,
0: that's so that's so great. I feel like um, what I'm excited about seeing in your book and some other books that have emerged maybe in the last five years or so is these are conversations I didn't grow up in a progressive space. I grew up in I grew up Catholic. Which at the time was was pretty conservative. Now it's more liberal, I I guess. Uh, And then went from there, kind of into the evangelical space. And especially when I got into some those of those evangelical spaces, these conversations were not really even allowed. You know, Mm. these it it almost was put off as being new agey, and almost as if like therapy was not a positive thing. And at least that's the narrative that I kind of internalized through it and so when i started reading some well first when i started seeing a the therapist but then when i started reading some some books from people who identify as christian who are writing about the enneagram who are writing about mental health who are writing about body work it just got it was it was like a new world kind of opened up and i think a lot of listeners of this show are probably thinking yeah this was a I feel a little dirty listening to Andrew talk because this is kind of space we were not allowed to explore before. And so now this, this whole new, you know, world is open to a lot of people who are in
1: kind of some of those conservative circles. It's so real. I think we've got to get honest about if we believe in at any level, if we believe in goodness, if we believe that there is something, um, that is infused in all of this world that we live in, if we believe that we have value, um, then the work is every single moment learning how to honor that more and more. Honoring the value in myself, I refer to it as my inherent dignity. Um, James Finley says it's the part that is invincibly precious within you. And and we have to learn how to honor the inherent dignity of everyone else and everything else in any, in any moment. And that is the... The work, whenever, I I hate how many people will say, you know, the work, the work, the work, but that's the work for me, is how are we in every moment getting a little bit better at recognizing and honoring that inherent dignity? Because the rest of the world and the systems we've set up are here to fragment us, to tear us apart, and to say we're not good enough, or we're not valuable enough, or we're not important, so that we can keep buying things. Or so that we keep dehumanizing others or put up with the dehumanization that's currently occurring to us. Yeah. And if we think
0: even within our our Christian circles, right, whatever your tradition was growing up, you probably learned some sort of version of like original sin. And then Mm -hmm. you've probably been told a message about how horrible you are and how Jesus had to die for you in order to, for you to be worth anything. And then you're also like I have a huge justice heart. And so kind of in that space, you would think that should be a really healthy space to, you know, live and move in. But then there's this encouragement almost of the suffering servant mentality. And really the self gets pushed down so hard in in most Christian traditions that I guess it's not surprising that we feel this the way we do um, if that was important to us. And then coming out of that and realizing, hey, I can still have the same general belief structure, belief around Jesus, a belief that uh, in God, a belief in being connected to the universe, all those kinds of things. But I can also believe in myself. And I think that's a beautiful thing because then, you know, it's like, the you know, the, the great commandment to, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love others as you'd love yourself. You know, that's, there's a piece of yourself in there. And, and sometimes that part is, is missed.
1: Yeah. You mentioned body work earlier. And I think that is such a, um, an obvious point. There's a reason yoga has taken off the way it has in the last 20 years, especially amongst the crew that no longer feels at home in church. Mm. And it's because yoga offers, um, just enough and we're talking sec, you know, secular yoga, right. um, offers just enough of a reminder that your body is divine, that your body has goodness in it. Right. Um, and that it's okay to spend time on it, not in a way that is, uh, you know, I actually just got back from the gym about an hour ago. Oftentimes when we go to the gym, we see people abusing their bodies but with this guise of I'm going to gain weight or I'm going to, you know, put on muscle and, but really what you're doing is you're, you're attacking, you're trying to dominate your own body. Mm-hmm. And I think what yoga does is it opens you up and says, no, it's okay to simply be and to learn how to move. I have a friend, uh, he, a uh, great poet, his name's James Pearson. And him and I used to go for walks along the beach that's over here in Tacoma, Washington. And one day we're out walking And he kind of strays away from me, and next thing I know is he's standing on this tall log, and he's just kind of moving along it. And my judgmental brain is immediately like, "Whoa, what are you doing? You're not five years old. We're adults. We should be walking peacefully along (laughs) along this water." And and I asked him. Actually, I don't even know if I asked him. I think he may have just said this. He said, "I'm learn. I'm playing." I'm playing because this is what I'm meant to do. This is what our bodies are meant to do is to explore the space around us. That is a deeply healthy thing from a therapeutic standpoint. It's also a deeply healthy and theologically sound um, activity from a religious and spiritual standpoint. If God is good and God is in us, if the divine is present, then it's okay to explore. We don't have to get stuck in the rules and the dogmas and the doctrines we can explore. And I think that's part of the book is these aren't my ideas. Every chapter is rooted in what are the teachings of mystics who have come before? What did St. Teresa of Avila say about this? What did Howard Thurman say about this? What did Thomas Merton say about this? Um, Because those are the voices. Those are the teachers that can guide us in our own lives that help us to also rein us in to give us another voice to, to listen to, not in a dogmatic way, but in a, um, in a healthy elder way. Yeah.
0: I love that. It's, it's, it's fun to watch our whole faith culture, seemingly, uh, bend back toward some of these, you know, what I would call like ancient saints or some of our Mm -hmm. desert fathers and mothers, things like that. And, and the reason it's exciting is not just because we're digging into the old, it's because we're listening to voices who, who had this understanding that we're a piece of a greater whole as opposed to like you were talking about before about this idea of like dominating everything that doesn't fit up with our or fit within our construct you know because most of the people that you just mentioned uh, as well as many others the the way they thought about spirituality was very very different than kind of our western modern mindset of christianity and which has led us to i think a place that most of us would identify as wildly unhealthy now. So now bending that, bending that back to some of those, and not that they're perfect, not that they are, you know, they don't, they never walked around with a halo or anything like that, but, Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. there was a perspective that they had, that many of them have had, that's different than the perspective that we understand now. And that's why there's value in it. And I get that, you know, um, you know, I, That's, that's just kind of my feeling of the excitement of it. And again, growing up Catholic, you know, we are so connected to the saints and so connected to, again, a lot of the people that you already mentioned. Um, so it's fun to watch kind of our whole culture move in that direction. And I think, you know, as you're moving forward, you do need to look back to find the healthy ways to, to move in that direction.
1: It's a cool admission that other voices matter, right? Like it's a cool admission of I'm not alone. Um, well it's it's cool admission i'm not alone because other people have walked before me Mm -hmm. but also that this person who lived a thousand years ago has something to say that is so valuable that it speaks so deeply to the essence of who i am now that there's something worth Mm -hmm. um listening to taking in working with and i think that's the same way there's people around us that are very similar uh, reverend angel kyoto williams uh, is a Buddhist priest and she's phenomenal. And I think, in the same way as some of the people I just named, there is deep, deep wisdom that's being spoken right now. And so, if we can attune ourselves to how am I listening for wisdom in the day to day, then we'll start to see that pop up. Because I think I do. I think it's so cool that people are, um, some of it's re- reclamation work. You know, we're reclaiming names from the past and these voices, and I think in the reclamation, there's also an openness to, and how do we see the voices around us? How do we listen to them? Because there's there's great power and great wisdom around us as well, especially in the this will, I think this is really valuable, especially in the protest spaces and the activist spaces, and the reason I share that specifically is that. If we are serious about this inner work, if we're serious about connecting with the divine within us or spirit, having a spiritual experience that can't be divorced and cut off from communal healing. It just can't. The individual, uh, the individual work means nothing if it's not impacting the way we're showing up in the world. And so there's a lot of beauty in how we're listening and responding to the people who are doing the, doing the real active on the front lines work. Uh, for justice and for uh, reducing the harm that's caused by the dehuman dehumanizing forces in our society.
0: Yeah. And I do think, you know, as we move forward and, and I'm fairly introverted in, in kind of who I am. And so there was a time there where there's that there where I had kind of this feeling when I was mad at church, mad at the whole thing, like, Oh, I'll just be by myself. That'll be fine anyway. Yeah. But it's just not. And even for somebody who considers himself a an, an in- introvert and likes to be by myself from time to time, you know, there's so much need for if if we're going to be exploring our faith, there has to be, like you said, a communal element to that. The thing that maybe I think, well, not that maybe that we're already seeing and we'll continue to see is what that looks like and mm-hmm. where we find that communal space, whether it's in a protest, whether it's in a yoga class, whether it's in the si- inside of a church, all of those are valid spaces. But I think we're just rethinking that we all still feel that need. A lot of the conversations that I'll hear in the grocery store or people that'll message me or whatever is I miss, I miss the coming together. I don't go to church anymore. And I miss the coming together and I miss, you know, singing together some of those beautiful things. And, um, and so it, I'm really excited to see, the different forms. And I'm already excited that I'm seeing different forms of of community uh, coming together, which is fun. And I love, you know, hearing you too. And again, talking about ancient saints and modern voices, modern saints, we'll call them, right? I love that. Again, in a lot of the traditions that I was a part of, the thing that trumped everything else were the voices inside of the scripture, the voices inside the Bible and everything else was secondary. And I always had a little bit of a problem with that because Mm -hmm. I thought, well, what about these really valuable, valid voices that are happening right now? And what about all the people that didn't write something that a bunch of guys decided should be in the Bible? You know, where are those voices? And again, another reason why it's exciting what you're talking about and, and what we're seeing in this world is it's just, you know, it's expanding our ability, to hear the story of God unfold in our world, what has been and what is currently.
1: Yeah. And it's not something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. I think that that's what it comes down to in so many ways is that there's a lot of looking out and being afraid of the change that is occurring. And the reality is the change that's occurring. Yes, there's a lot of it, and it's been happening. <laughs> right. So so it's ongoing. And you can't stop it. And so that's also, that's a practice. Um, in the book, there's a body practice called the, the muscle relaxation practice. Super simple. But it's a practice of um, becoming aware of the ways we tense up our muscles. So whether it's your back muscles, your shoulders, or for me, it's usually my jaw. Becoming aware of where in our body we're holding the tension. Because so often the tension that we're holding is a response to the world or to the experience that we're having. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll name this the night before my book came out, my back was the most tense I think it's ever been. Um, And that's, that's the stress of, of what's happening. Um, I also think in the last two years with COVID, I think there's been a lot more body tension and hopefully maybe perhaps more time for a lot of people to pay attention to that. But I think it's really valuable when we talk about, personal healing work and communal healing work to also recognize that when we look into the world, yes, there's a lot changing, but there's also unbelievable beauty and cool creativity showing up and we can learn to unclench. We can learn to let those muscles relax and let go and just watch with soft eyes.
0: Yeah. my So my wife and I were, we're, at this stage in life where one of our kids is no longer, we've got two. One of our kids is no longer living with us, has their own apartment, adulting very, very well, still asks for money once in a while. And then our other one is 17, junior in high school, going to be a senior next year, and, we're at, and that's all we got. And so I, th- I think it was Susie, my wife, who mentioned, uh I don't know, we were having this conversation and we talked about you really have to hold on as you let go, you know, the letting Oof. go is such a beautiful process, but you got to hold. and I feel like our whole like world is in this place and definitely like our Christian culture, like we're like, we're, we, we know it has to move forward, but, there's almost this morning that has to happen. And there's also this, uh, you you have to, you know, you have to be ready to let go because it's, it's, it's happening. It just is happening. <laughs> you can, you can just look at all the statistics of what's going on in our faith culture and it's changing. And, and as much as Pete, a lot, and I love change, you know, I'm an Enneagram seven, like let's change every day if we can't multiple <laughs> times, but most people are a little bit adverse to change. And so, it's happening. And so it's more about like learning how to hold on as you let go, you know, like, just just buckle down, figure out how you're going to do it. Well, and I think that body work is really good. I'm a jaw guy as well. When I'm tense. yeah, <laughs> uh, my, you know, again, Susie, my wife can tell when I'm when when we're struggling a little bit, because you can see my like, jaw, like just flexing you can't keep anything from her because she knows what tenses up on me as well. But I think if we can do some of that body work, as we're in this huge transition in our world, that's going to be healthy for all of us as well. It's going to help us be able to have more calm conversations. It's mm-hmm. going to help us just be more healthy physically, which we need so that we can be healthy mentally. And so, as much as for some people that body work thing, you know, kind of trips them out a little bit. It's so you know, again, as we get older, I think we realize more and more the importance of listening to your body because it just starts giving out on you. Like I go to I go to bed and. <laughs> I go to bed feeling fine. I wake up and I got injured in the middle of the night of sleeping. You know, so you got to take care of yourself. So give you, us some examples of of some body work that you talk
1: about. Oh yeah, totally. Um, so one of them's the 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 muscle relaxation practice. Mm-hmm. There's another one called the right sizing practice. Um, and I promise I didn't end all of them with the practice. Um, but the right sizing practice was one of the first ones that I was introduced to, and then I've kind of made it my own over the years. And it's a practice of learning to expand your body and then constrict it really slowly. And the background of it is so many of us have been taught to take up more space than we ought to take up. Um, I speak specifically from a white male heterosexual standpoint, right? I've been taught to take up and dominate space. That was implicit and explicit at different points of my upbringing. There's also a lot of us who have been taught to shrink, to take up less space when there's conflict in the room, make yourself as small as humanly possible, hope they don't see me. And so the right sizing practice is a practice of taking all of that put and feeling that in our body and then practicing in an embodied way, making your body as large as you possibly can. So literally going from, you know, feet, just standing to widen your feet, widen your arms and slowly expand as big as you can hold it for a few moments, feel what it feels like and then constrict it all the way down until you're, um, you know, tucked into roughly the fetal position. If your body will allow you to go that low and doing that multiple times, one, in my experience, you'll, you'll find out that you're sweaty (laughs) And, and, and more than that, I think what that practice really invites us into is how uncomfortable many of us are without knowing it with our bodies. Hmm. How how few a time in our adult lives we take the time to just simply move our bodies slowly in a way that's not because I woke up and had a bad hip this right. morning, right? <laughs> um, so I think that's that's another body practice I really appreciate. I lead a lot of my workshops. I I have that as a core component. I think there's one other that I would offer, and it's a little less of a body practice, but I think it's a really valuable one because it's an embodied practice and this is how it works there's a there's a phrase and it's called it is what it is and how can i be present with it in a loving way and how that phrase works and how the practice works is whether or not or whether you're uh, you have an emotion that's spiking for you so anger is coming up or you're seeing something out in the world tuning your immediate response instead of judgment or Um, that fight, flight, freeze mechanism, trying to tune that immediate response to saying, okay, it is what it is. If my anger is coming up in me, okay, it is what it is. I'm feeling angry right now. And how can I be present with it in a loving way? Not how can I dominate it? Not how can I destroy it? Not how can I get away from it? But taking the moment to actually ask, how can I be present with my anger right now? What's going on in me that's asking for my attention and intention and In the same way, and this is where it's uh, really embodied in our communities, when you're out walking and you see an issue of injustice or you see someone being dehumanized, start by saying, okay, it is what it is. It's non judgmental It's just a statement of, this is what I'm seeing. Get really clear on the facts. Get really clear on what the situation is. How can I be present with the person who's being harmed in a loving way? How can I be present with the person who's doing the harm in a loving way? And that's a that question or that phrase, I think, opens us up to slow down our reactivity, slow down our um, our nervous systems, so that we can respond both inwardly to ourselves and to our communities uh, in more of a loving, peaceful, and and if not peaceful, thought through way. Um, so that's another practice I'd, I'd offer. I I think that's a really that's been a very big one in my life personally yeah and i think just
0: the ability to slow ourselves down in the midst of chaos is is such an important thing and we're so used to moving so fast to be able to slow down in the midst of those situations is is vital and is going to be something i think all of us especially as americans are really going to have to have to work on question that i have based on what you talk about in the book um and honestly like just based on my own experience is um you know so say it's the feeling that I'm alone or I'm always alone or I will mm-hmm. be alone or I'll be abandoned. So say that. So for myself, that's something that I deal with is, is the goal. And, and again, it's cause I work, I've been working on this for a while will that ever go away or is the goal just to acknowledge that it's there so i can function with it because part of me feels like it's just so ingrained right like people who feel that way whether it's i'm alone or i'm unlovable or whatever it it, it's just feels like it's a part of you sometimes and so that's why the question is like am i am i trying to get rid of this or is that just a ridiculous thought? And is it more that I just have to be aware of this
1: so I can move forward and function well in the world? That's so good. Um, So I'll answer it to the best of my feeling. Um, I'm aware that that's not maybe a question that's even answerable. (laughs) No, it's such a good, it's such a good one though. Here's my gut feeling about it. Um, I've been toying with this image and it it's really resonating with me right now is that we have a word for folks who grow old and don't do their inner work and we call them curmudgeons. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the folks that grow older and they don't see themselves inwardly. And perhaps that's coping mechanisms, right? From past trauma, past experiences, but for one way or the other, they are not in touch with their inner lives. And so they go around projecting their insecurities, fears, their narratives on others. On the other hand, we also know people who are, for lack of a better word, dancers, right? The the elderly folks that you can see the twinkle in their eye, they're still curious, they're still excited. They see the the silly, stupid stuff that's happening and they they light up and they say, oh, what, you know, what, what it is to be alive. <laughs> and so... I think one of the differences is that the dancer knows that they don't have to dominate or eliminate that narrative, that it is ingrained. By the time we're adults, it's there. And so I think the dancer knows that and has learned through probably falling down and getting back up quite a few times to sit with it, to work with it. And to be okay with it. My bet is there's still spikes of, let's say I'm not, or let's say this feeling of I'm alone, there's probably still spikes of that, mm-hmm. but then being able to respond to that in ways of, okay, what has worked for me that will allow me to not feel that right now in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. Or what are things that have worked for me that reminds me that that's a narrative that's not actually reality? Um I think it's so important to make sure
0: the people closest to you the people you live with your spouse your kids they're aware of that insecurity yes. or that thing that you deal with so that you know i can think you could be in an argument with them and they can say i'm not saying fill in the blank but here's what i am saying and when you get to that point then even that situation is working through it together again community it's awesome
1: it's so yeah. I I think I I think I refer to that as my, the circle of trust that everyone needs to have a circle of trust in some form, whatever form that takes. Um, you need to have somebody else that sees you, and this is where I'm a huge proponent of therapy. If you don't know if you have that person, it's okay to pay someone. Right, <laughs> it's right, like it's like, it. like it's so worth it. I think therapy is a phenomenal avenue to ensure that there's someone in your life who has professional skills, professional training, and who can see you. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I can't say that. I One of the things that really led to this book, um, when I was, let's see, this is four, five, six years ago now, I went through a pretty rough breakup. Um, we had been engaged. We were heading towards marriage. We were planning stuff through, and it all just kind of fell apart on me. And at the same time as it was falling apart and home life was, you know, uh, landmines everywhere, I was going to work and we had a new principal as well. I was teaching Mm -hmm. and the principal and I didn't see eye to eye. So work was landmines everywhere. And it didn't help that I was our union rep. And so my job was to protect the teachers from the landmines, right? To protect the teachers from all these different things and to, to be their voice. And so I was going to work and feeling my very just, torn apart you know in battle mode then i was going home and i felt in battle mode and there was one night i I call it my ride of rage now where my partner and i were having this conversation it was an argument i'm not a yeller though so it was a it was a impassioned argument that was very quiet Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and i and i couldn't take anymore my body said you know you've had enough you're carrying too much tension right now and so i left the house, hopped on my bike and I just tore up the street. I was going as fast as I can. My, the wheels were spinning. Um, I was just going as, as hard as I possibly could. And I was really just angering, I think at the world and I slowed down and I came to a stop and I looked around, there's no lights on. I'm in a neighborhood. I've never been in poor. I don't have any memory of how I got there and I was just there breathing. So I'm, you know, just heavy breathing. And I had this breakthrough moment of, okay, this is where I'm at right now. This is, this is the experience. It's kind of that is, it is what it is. That, that moment of this is what I'm going through and it's real and it's not my fault and it's not her fault. It just is. And it's okay. Um, And that was a breakthrough moment for me because one, I went back to the house and I was so much calmer. <laughs> and yeah. It went way better. It's amazing what taking a, a breath and also working your body a little bit, getting some endorphins yeah, out is important. Some tires. Exactly. Past, yeah. <laughs> um, do what you need to do. Do what you need to do. Exactly. And, and the other thing was that it told me, my body, I think, told me, and it's time to go to therapy. It's time to go see someone who can see you um, in the midst of the muck, in the midst of all this. And so I... I I was once told by a pastor, uh, this is more of a conservative background, I was once told by a pastor that Christians shouldn't need therapy because they should have healthy <laughs> pastors. And I cannot explain how much I think that's BS. I, that is just, I'm not even, even going yeah. to touch it. That's how much I hate what you do. Yeah, said. that it was one of the worst things I think I've ever heard from a clergy member. And I couldn't believe it in the moment. I, I just stared because if we're in a society, no one person can fulfill all our needs. Those of us who are in a relationship, we know that. We And we don't want, like, I can't put that on my partner to ask her to fulfill literally everything. And so there is a shift that I think needs to be made where we're we say, okay, I do. I go to my therapist because my therapist helps me with this. And I go to a pastor for this. And I have a partner and friends and work people and so and so and so. Spread it out. <laughs> yeah, spread exactly. out the community. <laughs> so you're saying that one that one semester
0: of pastoral counseling that all the pastors had to take isn't enough to see into my soul? Oh
1: my god! I I seriously couldn't believe it. I yeah. it just it was one of those moments where I I thought I really thought it must suck to be in your shoes right now right, because right. you have so much on your shoulders yeah. and you might not even notice it. But what you just said really means that you've got the world on your shoulders and that sucks i'm really happy the world's not on mine (laughs) at least you feel that way
0: (laughs) um last question um that i always like to leave with is just where are you seeing hope in the world or you could say what do you hope for for people that read through your book just just where do you see the hope or where do you desire the hope in the world
1: i see hope in the world in the small communities um I, i see i do see hope in the way new things are being created um, and where innovation is happening, where folks are leaving, especially faith spaces and saying, I don't need to go back, but you know what I am going to do? I'm going to invite seven people over to my house or three people over to my house mm-hmm. once a month and we're going to have a bonfire, um, you know, or I'm going to invite these people over and we're going to create some rituals that work for us that create meaning in our lives. And I hope that's part of what this book will do for folks as well. So it'll be an invitation to look into your own life with intention and maybe gather two or three other people together and work it together. I'm not going to say read it together because you said it. It's it's, a, it's not quite a workbook, but it's a book that has a lot of work in it. So um, pull some folks together and create community around the inner work that is so desperately needed of us.
0: As we bring it home today, and as I'm thinking about the conversation I had with Andrew, the biggest thing that sticks out to me is, so often when we feel stuck in life and we're trying to figure out what we're supposed to do next, all of our attention goes to the external. Like how do I need to improve my faith? What do I need to do? How do I change my career? What do I need to do? But Andrew's work reminds us that All of that change that maybe we desire in our lives or all of that forward movement that we hope for in our lives has to start by addressing the inner critic and has to start with focusing inside before we can think about what's going to happen on the external. You can find Andrew at his website, which is just andrewglang.com. The book, again, is Unmasking the Inner Critic, Lessons for Living an Unconstricted Life, and you can find that wherever books are sold. Again, thanks for Andrew for joining the show. You can find me at my website, which is simply mattkinzara.com. Also on Facebook and Instagram under Matt and Facebook under Chasing Goodness. And until next time, let's continue to chase
1: goodness together.